Blog Talk Radio. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. I would like to welcome you to the February 9th, 2015 edition of the Mask of Zion Report here on the Ugly Truth Broadcasting Network that I must say I am quite glad is back up and running full swing. We have a very important uh, and long overdue discussion to get into today, brothers and sisters, and we will be getting into uh, our discussion very early on uh, in this broadcast. Beforehand, however, there are a couple of small issues that I would like uh, to point out. First and foremost uh, is a salute to the godfather of the Ugly Truth Broadcasting Network, as well as the Crescent and Cross Solidarity Movement, uh, our close friend, confidant, and brother, uh, Mark Glenn, who was out sick uh, this week, and he asked me uh, and a few of the other Ugly Truth hosts to pick up the slack for him. We pray that he gets better very soon. And also like to shoot a shout out and a salute uh, to our dear brother Trevor Labonte, who helped found uh, MukawamaMusic.net with me and has become an editor uh, at The Ugly Truth over the last few months. He is behind the glass filling in for Brother Mark Glenn today, and he will literally be manning the boards. I also would like to send uh, my salams and greetings to our dear brother Michael Collins Piper. Uh, Brother Michael, if you're listening, I know you have been out of the game for a little while uh, dealing with uh, your own issues, but I pray that you come back very, very soon and know that you are an inspiration and a source of light for every one of us here at The Ugly Truth and for not just thousands or tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands, but millions of people all around the world who have had the pleasure and the honor of reading your work. Before we get into the heart of our discussion today, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to take a moment uh, to discuss what is happening uh, in eastern Ukraine the Donbass region, and particularly in the People's Republics of Donetsk and Lugansk. What our brothers and sisters, our Orthodox Christian brothers and sisters are facing in eastern Ukraine, along with people from all over the globe, including Chechen and Dagestani Muslims who have come to their aid to fight off this Zionist American coup in Kiev is nothing short of awe-inspiring. They have had their homes destroyed. They have had their livelihoods eviscerated. They have seen their children prevented from going to school, and there are now hundreds of thousands of Eastern Ukrainian children who have had their childhoods ripped away from them. What they are dealing with, ladies and gentlemen, is nothing short of a Zionist American attempt to start World War III. The Kiev coup regime, which was installed by the neocon cabal in the White House, led by Victoria Nuland, who is the wife 
uh, of one of the Kagans, which as many of you should know at least, is basically neocon royalty. Led by Victoria Newland, the Obama regime has declared outright war not only on the people of the Donbass, but also on Russia. And this war, led by the Jewish neocons in Obama's White House, not to mention covert ops from the Israelis, we have seen reports of uh, numerous Israelis leading many of the battalions uh, in the quote-unquote Maidan revolution that toppled Viktor Yanukovych's government a little over a year, uh, a little over a year ago, or rather coming up uh, on a year ago. Not to mention, we have seen numerous Jews leading a lot of these so-called fascist battalions, including those affiliated with right sector, not to mention the people who are running the Ukrainian regime today, Petro Poroshenko and Arseniy Yatsenyuk, and, of course, the ever-ubiquitous uh, ubiquitous Igor Kolomoisky, are all Ukrainian Jews with Israeli citizenship. So what we are witnessing in Kiev is undoubtedly an American Zionist coup with fascist and neoliberal sprinklings. It is a motley crew of various ideologies that have all been thrown together in this uh, Jewish imperialist amalgamation to wage war, not only on Russia, but also Orthodox Christianity. Why? Because ever since Vladimir Putin came to the helm, we have seen the forces of Christianity, true Christianity, which is indeed Orthodox Christianity, spoken about uh, in the Quran, in Surat Al-Ma'idah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the closest to you in brotherhood, meaning Muslims, the closest to you Muslims in brotherhood are the Christians because they still hold fast to monasticism, in other words, the monasteries. And the forces of Orthodox Christianity and Islam are locked in a literal life-and-death struggle against the Jewish Zionist New World Order. So anywhere that the Zionist-occupied government in Washington and its controller in the gigantic Jewish colonialist settlement of Tel Aviv can inflict schisms and inflict damage on this Islamic Christian coalition of resistance, that is exactly what they're going to do. And watching the people of the Dunbas raise up their arms and rise up from the ashes of this horrific war that the coup regime has imposed on them, a war that has included cluster bombs and white phosphorus, and it's no surprise that these are the instruments that the Kiev coup regime is using. Because if you folks remember, I believe this story was published on The Ugly Truth, and uh, Brother Max French and Brother Alexander and I spoke about this late last year in a program, that the Ukrainian army was taking its inspiration for the implementation of tactics from none other than the illegitimate Jewish occupation regime itself. So when you see the sheer brutality that the coup regime is inflicting on civilians in the Donbass, the weaponry that it is using to inflict this carnage, it's really no surprise. Not to mention, uh, there was a story that we published on Mukawama Music just 
uh, two days ago, in which the order came from the Kiev coup regime, and this came from uh, a translated piece from Russian media, so it's not the kind of thing that you will read uh, within the Jewish-owned and Jewish-dominated Western mainstream narrative, that the Kiev coup regime sent down the order to destroy the Donbass and target civilians, no matter what the cost is going to be. So there indeed, ladies and gentlemen, is a war going on, and it is a war of existential importance for the people uh, in the Donbass. They are literally fighting for their very survival. And I saw earlier on uh, this week that uh, Alexander Zakharashenko, the prime minister uh, of the Donetsk People's Republic, he used very, very interesting language, and this wasn't really picked up by any uh, outlet because apart from the lone story on Yahoo, because they do not want to draw attention to the, to the Jewish Zionist character of this revolution. Instead, they want to uh, get people focusing on the fascist and neo-Nazi shock troops of the revolution, not the orchestrators of the revolution itself. And we have spoken about this before, ladies and gentlemen, going back uh, to the very fall uh, of Viktor Yanukovych's government in uh, 2014, in February, which again, we're, we're approaching about a year. If, I, if my memory serves me correctly, his government went down on February the 21st, which was about two weeks uh, give or take two weeks after that, uh, Vladimir Putin made the historic move of liberating Crimea. So since that time, ladies and gentlemen, and we have spoken about this before, there is a reason why the Zionists and imperialist Washington chose neo-Nazis as their shock troops to implement this rusophobic coup in Kiev. And that is because there is a rise in revisionism all over the world. It doesn't matter where it is. It, the Arab world, the greater uh, Arab and Islamic world, throughout Europe, throughout America, Canada, and maybe most importantly in Japan, there is revisionism that is taking hold everywhere and also, most importantly in terms of demographics, amongst youth. People within the 16 to 25-year-old age bracket are looking back at history and realizing it is nothing but a bunch of fooey. It was written by the victors, and each one of the victors was working for international Jewry at the time. People are beginning to see that everything that they were told about National Socialist Germany and everything that they were told about Pan-Asianist Japan were out-and-out lies from soup to nuts. Now, this does not necessarily mean that National Socialist Germany was some kind of saintly entity like, say, Hezbollah or the Islamic Republic of Iran are today, which in my personal view are the closest things to saintly righteous powers that we're going to get in this Judaized, corrupt, filthy, and decadent world that we are currently living in. But nevertheless... Germany and Japan were the good guys during World War II. There is no doubt about that. Whereas the Americans, the Soviets, the Brits, 
and the rest of the European powers that uh, comprise the Allied coalition were indeed the very personification of evil. Let us not forget, ladies and gentlemen, that at this time, Britain and France had colonized literally 95% of the planet. 95% of the planet. Japan, at the very least, was fighting to liberate a large chunk of these lands, and Japan succeeded in doing so. Meanwhile, Germany was literally leading a financial revolution against the Rothschild cabal. Now, despite all of the disinformation that you have seen around numerous truther websites, whether it is from those who proclaim themselves to be anti-Zionist or from shills uh, like Alex Jones, the fact of the matter is that the National Socialist government was not an agent of the Rothschilds. It was not financed by the Rothschilds. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, the National Socialist government in Germany kicked out the Rothschilds from at least three of their positions. And logic would dictate, and by the way, that is France, Germany, and Austria. Logic would dictate that if Germany was to have won the war, or at least come to more of a stalemate, no doubt that they would have marched onward and kicked the Rothschilds out of Britain. So because of this, ladies and gentlemen, this is the essence of it. Now, from my perspective, from the Iraqi Islamic perspective, uh, there is a certain affinity that I have for Germany and Japan because while the British were annihilating my people, including the village that my family came from in Kufa, it was the German government that gave us arms to fight the British, and it was the Japanese government that offered military training to the anti-British resistance forces. So I have to put that out there essentially as a disclaimer. But facts are facts. Germany fought the Rothschild cabal. That is the essence of it. And regardless of anything else that the German government was engaged in, regardless of any of its other policies, the monsters who control this planet do not want that information leaking into the mainstream populace's collective consciousness. That is the reality. So because of this, they are waging a war on revisionism through the wars that they are waging for geopolitical control. So by unleashing these neo-Nazi and fascist militias in the Ukraine, what they are essentially doing is tarring, retarring, and then tarring again the concept of national socialism by linking it to these mindless skinhead thugs who are proxies of zio-imperialism. So then when certain persons or groups within the movement uh, for truth come across those who, again, have an affinity uh, for revisionism, they're going to look at us as if we are out of our minds. And I would say, uh, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, uh, international Zionism has indeed succeeded with this plot. And that's why it is so very important, ladies and gentlemen, to point out these truths, that the war in Ukraine, particularly on the uh, Eastern Orthodox Christian people of the Donbass, is not only a war 
for geopolitical, geopolitical control, with Washington uh, and the criminal regime of Tel Aviv are looking to dislodge Russia from its point of resurgence. They are also waging a war on the revisionist character that is being adopted by resistance, uh, truth, and research movements all over the world. Now, anyway, this brings me back to the prime minister of, the, uh, of uh, Donetsk, the Donetsk People's Republic, Alexander Zakharashenko, in which the gentleman said that the persons running the Ukraine are quote-unquote miserable Jews. That is exactly what he said. Some others have translated it as miserable representatives of the Jewish people. Nevertheless, the Donetsk prime minister pointed out the Jewish character of this revolution. And that particular story has barely been covered. It sort of came and went, and you would think, ladies and gentlemen, with such an openly so-called anti-Semitic statement that the Zionist media, and indeed the world media, whether it's Al-Arabiya, which we Arabs call Al-Ibriya, or the Hebrew, or Al-Jazeera in the Arab world, or any of the private media in the Ukraine, most of it is Jewish-owned, or the Western media here, which is all controlled by either Zionist Jews or Christian Zionists who are allied with the Zionist Jews, you would think that in a media that is so obsessed, as Michael Collins Piper uh, says routinely, uh, Jews are news. Jews are news, ladies and gentlemen. And you read the opinion pages of several of the various news outlets, Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times, the Chicago Tribune, not to mention the BBC. There are constantly stories about anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, uh, Jewish power, Jewish wealth that's spoken about in a positive way. So why is it that they did not dive on this story and milk the living daylights out of it? The answer is very simple, ladies and gentlemen, because the Jewish Zionist character of the coup in Kiev, the criminal NATO expansionist coup in Kiev, they don't want this truth to come out. They simply don't want it. So with that said, brothers and sisters, when you speak about the Ukraine, there is no problem that you point out the fascist and neo-Nazi character uh, of these militias, like right sector, as long as it is within a certain context. If you are speaking about it without the proper context, then you are doing everyone who is a revisionist a disservice. Period. End of story. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, I would like uh, to reiterate once again that our thoughts, our prayers, and every drop of good energy that we have uh, is with the Donbass resistance, a.k.a. Nouveau-Russia's armed forces, and the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics. We are with the men, the women, the children, the elderly, and the resistance fighters on the front line, and everyone who has come from all over Europe and Russia, for that matter, including, again, the Chechen and Dagestani Muslims who are on the front lines with our brethren there. Your resistance is not futile. 
In fact, your resistance is Gentile. And what you are doing, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters of the Dunbas, is historic. And we pray that you will indeed be able to raise your 100,000 strong army. And we pray, inshallah khair, ya Rab, that you will be able to defeat uh, the forces of international Zionism in the Donbass and bring this horrible and brutal war to an end once and for all. Again, we say, inshallah khair, uh, ya Rab. And for those who have passed away within uh, the last couple of weeks, we say, inna lillahu wa inna lihi rajiun. From Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we came, and to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we will return. And that does it my dear brothers and sisters, for our intro. Now I would like to get to the core uh, of today's discussion, and we still have a good 40 uh, to 50 minutes uh, to get into it. Uh, about two weeks ago, give or take a day or two, something historic happened in South Lebanon in the occupied territory known as Sheba Farms. While the Lebanese Islamic resistance of Hezbollah liberated the vast majority, let's say 99% of South Lebanon uh, in the year 2000, the famous day was May 25th, 2000, as many of you have heard me discuss on several different occasions over the last several years, but there were still three villages remaining. One was called Ghazar, the other was called the Kofr Shuba Hills, and the other was called the Sheba Farms. Now, there has been a dispute between Lebanon and Syria and the UN and the usurping Zionist regime over what this land actually was. Was it uh, Al-Suri? Was it Syrian? Or was it Lubnani? Was it Lebanese? Well, the Syrians decided little over a decade ago, that indeed the land was Lebanese, which means that Hezbollah has the right, whenever it so chooses, to engage in armed operations to liberate this land from Zionist control. But what happened 10 days ago, or excuse me, about two weeks ago on January 28th, was again something, nothing less than historic. The reason why it, it plays into our discussion today, which I believe we can appropriately title Hezbollah's Historic Retaliation, Worldwide Resistance, Gatekeepers, and What Is and Isn't News. We will get to the context of it in just a moment, but first let us cover the background. On January 18th, there was a convoy of Mukawama fighters traveling in the occupied Golan Heights. Now, again, we say occupied Golan Heights. The usurping Jewish entity occupied and began colonizing Al-Jolan in 1967 during Al-Naqsa, known by the Jews as the Six-Day War. During this time, they expelled over 120,000 Syrians from their homes. They destroyed 130 villages, give or take. There are only 
five to six villages that are left standing in the occupied Golan Heights today, and they're populated by about five to 6,000 Syrians. Most of them are Druze. And the Druze people, ladies and gentlemen, are very much attached to the state. They are pro-Syria. They are pro-Assad. They stand with the Syrian Arab army, and they are nothing less than militant towards the very existence of this Jewish tumor that is putrefying the entire Arab world. Needless to say, the Golan has been under Zionist control since 67, and then the Jews annexed it in 1981. So, Syria, considering the Golan Heights, is 100% Syrian land. The Syrian Arab army has the right, just like Hezbollah does in, in Shephafam, Ghazar, and Kufr Shuba, they have the right, whenever they so choose, to launch operations. On January 18th, though, something very curious happened. There was a Mukawama convoy traveling, and this Mukawama convoy that we found out a couple days later uh, from Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, Allah yahmi Rab, may God protect him, Hezbollah's secretary general. They were only carrying their service weapons as a matter of protection because there were so many takfiri terrorists within the area, particularly Jafat al-Nusra. So this convoy was not armed. It turns out that they were, they were on a recon mission because as many of you should know, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah announced a little over a year and a half ago that whenever the order came down from Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, Hezbollah would partake in the training of a popular resistance in the Golan, modeled after Hezbollah's military doctrine, and they would begin engaging in operations to liberate the Golan from Jewish control. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this Mukawama convoy was very special because it was carrying three personalities that can only be described as integral to the entire resistance project within the region. Now, there were seven people in total, four of whom were Hezbollah fighters. One was a very prominent commander within the organization. One was a very symbolic personality, and one was an Iranian general who reported to none other than IRGC Quds Force Commander, Brigadier General Qasim Soleimani. Those three very special martyrs were Jihad Mughnir, the son of legendary martyred Hezbollah commander Imad Mughnir, who was murdered by the Mossad with a car bomb in Damascus in February of 2008. Jihad was a rising star within the resistance, and he has been described as being mentored by none other than Qasem Soleimani himself. And the pictures of Jihad with Commander Soleimani are a testament to this reality. Not to mention the things that mattered most to young Jihad, who was only 25, 
were the cause of the resistance itself, martyrdom and the Palestinian cause. And when you think, ladies and gentlemen, that the usurping Zionist regime has already murdered Imad Mughniyeh, as well as Imad Mughniyeh's brothers, Fuad and Jihad, with Fuad being martyred uh, back in the 80s, Jihad being martyred in 1995 when the Mossad attempted to kill Imad and they martyred Jihad instead, and now Jihad, the son of Imad. There's a very famous story uh, from South Lebanon in which in the wake of uh, Imad Mughniya being martyred, that his mother sent a letter to Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah in which she apologized to the Secretary General of the Resistance that she had no more sons to offer him for martyrdom. And now to see her grandson, Jihad, be martyred as well, has to undoubtedly break her heart because she is a woman that is entirely committed to the resistance. This is a woman of stature and of righteousness that really cannot be uh, compared. So this was a very important, uh, very important model for Hezbollah to say the very least. Also among the convoy was a man by the name of Muhammad Abu Isa Isa, who was a Syrian Lebanese fighter within Hezbollah. This man was a living legend. He was literally with Hezbollah from the very, very beginning. This was a man that oversaw three generations of resistance fighters. He was one of the original fighters within the Mukawama during the fight against the usurping entity when the occupation of South Lebanon began and Hezbollah was just starting before it even had its name. He then trained the second group of resistance fighters, which carried out operations against the usurping entity throughout the 1990s until the liberation and then the historic July War in 2006. And then, ladies and gentlemen, this man trained fighters who would eventually go to Syria to defend the resistance's anti-Zionist weapons supply lines and defend Lebanon's borders from the Zionist top theory proxies. He's been described by reputable outlets, although it has not been confirmed by Hezbollah one way or another, that he was the field commander of Hezbollah's operations in both Syria and Iraq. And Al-Akbar, editor-in-chief Ibrahim Alamin, who was among the most reputable journalists on the face of the planet, did indeed confirm that Abu Isa did fight and train in Iraq. He did a tour. That's the way Ibrahim Alamin described it. So Muhammad Aisa was also a high-level martyr for the resistance. And lastly, but certainly not least, was Brigadier General of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, Muhammad Ali al-Ahtadi, who Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah would describe in his speech just a couple days after Hezeb's retaliation, uh, that his rank is far higher than a general. And as the reports go from reliable Iranian media outlets, General Al-Ahtadi reported directly to Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani. 
there was some initial confusion, ladies and gentlemen, in the wake of this assassination on January 18th. But what was so very different about it is that when the models of Hezbollah were described by Hezeb, they were not described as carrying out their jihadi duty, which is the way models have been described who are fighting uh, for Syria or also when a resistance fighter may be martyred during training. Their names were called out and they were called out immediately with the resistance issuing a statement that these men were on a recon mission within the Golan. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the reason why this attack was carried out is not because of the Israeli elections, as a lot of misguided so-called anti-Zionist journalists and commentators have said. This was not, and this is from uh, misguided Zionist journalists and commentators have said that uh, it was to test the readiness of the resistance. This was part of the ongoing intelligence war that has been waged by Hezbollah and the usurping Jewish regime since the July war came to an end. There are still Lebanese lands that are occupied, and more importantly, ladies and gentlemen, all of Palestine remains occupied by the cancerous tumor known as Israel. And for that reason, there is going to be a war waged by Hezbollah until every single dunham of Palestine is liberated from the putrefying Jewish presence. There is going to be a war waged by Hezbollah, even at a low-intensity level, until Kufr Shuba, Ghazar, and the Sheba farms are liberated. What the Jews did not know, ladies and gentlemen, what they did not know, is that by carrying out this assassination, that Hezbollah was going to respond the way they did. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the truth of the matter. They knew what they were doing when they carried out the assassination. They just did not know that what they were going to do was going to trigger the response that it did. And this goes to the arrogance of the enemy, ladies and gentlemen. You know, there is a theme throughout uh, the Quran when dealing with the sons of Zion. And that is that they are so very arrogant that they think they know better than the prophets who were sent to them, alayhum al-salam. They think they know better than Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator who commands these prophets and who bestowed upon them revelation. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, in the holy city of Qom in Iran, there is a course that every cleric who is studying to become a Huzat al-Islam, a sheikh, or an ayatollah must study. And it's called Killers of the Prophets. And it talks about the behavior of the Jews from the time of the Israelites to the time of the Zionists 
today because the behavior is always the same. And that is why when you hear me discuss these things, I always talk about it in a trans-historical manner because the behavior of these creatures has not changed since the very beginning. Since the very beginning. And one of their traits regardless of where they have been, whether they were in Egypt, whether they were throughout the Arab world, whether it is the Khazars who adopted Judaism in 741 AD and would later become the Ashkenazic population of Jewry, the behavior is all the same because Judaism is a toxic ideology that infuses this arrogant idea of chosenness within its adherence. So you take a person who is humble, you take a person who is even God-fearing, and these qualities are eviscerated by the chosenness, where you then think of yourself as God's gift to the world, and that humanity is at your service, and even that God himself is at your service. Hence, some of the tractates within the Talmud that say that many an ancient rabbi debated with God in that the rabbi won a thought for the law. Because of this arrogance, ladies and gentlemen, and this arrogance has been manifested tenfold with the existence of the illegitimate Israeli regime, because now, as Israeli activist and journalist Yossi Gervitz spoke of, the Jews have their state now. When the Jews do not have their state, Israel is weak. When the Jews have their state, Israel is mighty. And all the anti-Gentilism begins to manifest because Jews are amongst Jews. You see? And with that said, with Jews being amongst Jews, Jews also have access to the finest and most technologically advanced weaponry on the face of the planet. So there is already a religious arrogance that is a part of it. There is already a cultural arrogance that is a part of it. There is already a political arrogance that is a part of it. I'm sure all of you remember the famous statement from Ariel Sharon that don't worry about the Americans. We, the Jewish people, control America, end quote, his very, very infamous statement. Um, but now you add a military arrogance to it, and you have a recipe for catastrophe. So when the Israeli occupation military carried out this raid uh, in Kometra, in the occupied Golan Heights on January 18th, they thought that Hezbollah would probably respond with, a, uh, with an IED attack like they did in the Sheba Farms uh, last October, or like they did in Labumni uh, in November of 2013. I'm sure this is what the Zionists expected. Instead, however, what took place was, again, nothing short of legendary uh, and historic. On January 28th, just a few days before Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah was set to give a speech uh, setting out the Mukawama's position on the Kometra models, including Jihad Mughni, Abu Aisa, Aisa, 
and uh, General Al-Ahtabi. Hezbollah carried out an attack in the occupied Sheba farms. Now, you have to understand where we were at, that, at this point, ladies and gentlemen. This operation that the Mukawama carried out, and it was carried out by a unit known as the Kunetra Maras Brigade, the, excuse me, the Heroic Maras of Kunetra Brigade, it was, it was simply dazzling. There really is no other word for it, apart from maybe uh, spectacular or amazing, but it, it really was a dazzling resistance operation, mashallah. At this time, the Israeli occupation forces and all of the Jews who populate the settlements of northern Palestine and the occupied Golan Heights were on a heightened alert. The military was working day and night. The settlers were in and out of their shelters. And it was rather amusing to see the monsters scurry around the way they were. It's interesting. You know, Raphael Eitan, the famous Zionist spy master, infamously referred to Palestinians uh, as cockroaches. Well, ironically enough, it was the Jews and their occupation military who were running around and scurrying like cockroaches after the operation, which showed a deep-rooted fear that at least most of them were exhibiting. We cannot say this on a categorical level because there are several uh, Israeli generals and, and intelligence officials as well as Israeli politicians who called for a disproportionate response against Lebanon in the wake of uh, this legendary and masterful, masterful uh, Mukawama operation in Sheva Farms. People like Avid Dor Lieberman, there were other Israeli generals who said that what we did to Gaza is going to be repeated 50-fold uh, in Lebanon. And that is not a threat that we should take lightly. Because while we damn well know that the Israelis cannot fight Hezbollah, they sure as hell can inflict horrific, horrific damage. And this is why in Sayyid Nasrullah's speech, in the wake of the operation, he made it very clear that Hezbollah does not want uh, a war, but they are, they are mightily, mightily ready and prepared for such a war. But the reason why uh, the Sayyid Allah said this is because he knows the civilian toll that it took. He knows that. So this is not a threat that we should take lightly. But how? But needless to say. The fact of the matter is, is that the people on the ground, including the elite, the quote-unquote elite, Givati and Golani brigades of the Israeli occupation military, were on high alert. So on January 28th, in the midst of this heightened alert uh, amongst uh, the Jewish occupation military and all of its Zionist settlers, uh, in, all, in all of its Zionist settlers, the heroic martyrs of Kunetra Brigade of the Lebanese Islamic resistance of Hezbollah carried out an operation in broad daylight right around 11.25 or 11.30 in the afternoon. The heroic martyrs of Kunetra Brigade saw an Israeli convoy traveling through the Sheba Farms and from the cover of Al-Jabbal, the mountain, from the cover of the mountain, from the cover of the greenery 
of beautiful South Lebanon, these resistance fighters launched a plethora of anti-tank missiles at Israeli military vehicles that were traveling through uh, the Sheba Farms and eviscerated all of them, all of them. Now, Al-Mayadeen was on the scene at the time. It remains unclear whether they were embedded with the Mukawama or they just had un uh, uh, a reportage unit within the area. They immediately filmed the wreckage, brothers and sisters, and there were nine vehicles completely destroyed. We are, we are talking annihilated. And Al-Mayadeen initially reported that 15 Israeli soldiers were killed, including commanders from the Givati and Golani brigades. It was not just a proportional response from the Mukawama. It was a retaliation for the ages, for the ages, mashallah. Initially, the Jewish community papers in the States and the Israeli media did not report that there were any dead. Eventually, they said they were, they were only wounded. Well, as the day went along, the Israelis confirmed two dead, including a Givati Brigade's commander. The idea, ladies and gentlemen, that only two people died is simply laughable. It's laughable. It's very simple. They said that there were two dead and roughly eight or nine wounded. I want you to tell me how only... Two drivers were able to drive, or pilot, whichever verb you prefer, nine military vehicles. How is such a thing even possible? Anyone who knows even the slightest about military affairs and the kinds of vehicles that the Israelis were traveling and they were armored vehicles, there are at least two to three people within each vehicle, at the very least. You have one person driving, one person manning uh, the guns, or one person there, if there are no guns on the vehicle, then one person who's there for protection, and possibly another within the passenger seat uh, or in the back as backup. So it's very clear that the usurping cancerous Jewish entity uh, in Palestine is lying. And this, this uh, is a familiar pattern, ladies and gentlemen. If we look back to the July War, the Israelis confirmed that about 150 of their soldiers were killed. In reality, Hezbollah killed somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 uh, Israeli occupation troops, possibly more. In the last war with Gaza, Operation Protective Edge, or more appropriately from Hebrew, uh, Operation Mighty Cliff, they say that the Palestinian resistance only killed 71 soldiers. In reality, they killed closer to 150, according to Hamas's Al-Qassam brigades. So we know that the monsters are lying, and it's very easy to see why. This, ladies and gentlemen, is where Netanyahu's uh, political regime comes in. Because of the fact that Netanyahu is hanging on by a thread, and it is very likely that while he may win, his coalition will be shaky, and it is also likely on the flip side that the uh, liberal Zionist labor regime of Herzog and Livni will come to power to kind of placate 
the international community while deepening the Zionist colonization project, the fact of the matter is, is that Netanyahu could not take such a hit. If he was to announce that 15 Israeli soldiers were killed, including several senior commanders, it would bury him politically, and it would be the final nail in the coffin for the Herzog-Livni coalition to use to overthrow Netanyahu's regime. So they decided to announce merely two, and then there was this flurry of threats from the Israeli military intelligence establishment as well as several political figures like the uh, perpetually genocidal warmongering uh, Avigdor Lieberman. Um, with all of these threats that they would destroy Lebanon and inflict 50 Gazas on them and that they will respond in due time and what have you. They couldn't announce that only 15 soldiers were killed, the, the, the 15 soldiers were killed because they only killed seven fighters from, uh, seven persons from the Mokawama convoy, six fighters, including uh, field commander Muhammad Raisa uh, and, of course, the Iranian general. So they simply couldn't do that. So instead, they announced two, and it looked like their, their uh, initial attack on the resistance was the harsher response. Obviously, ladies and gentlemen, nothing could be further from the truth. So while, yes, indeed, this was one of the Mukawama's finest resistance operations ever, I mean, it's up there with the famous raid of Ansariya, which is a famous raid that the resistance carried out in 1997, leaving a similar number of Jewish occupation forces dead uh, and wounded. It really, really is up there among their finest ops to date. But this is not what was historic about it, ladies and gentlemen. What was historic was the following speech from Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah in which Sayyid Nasrallah announced, and there were so many things in the speech that can be covered, but we do not have the time, uh, the scope, nor do we have a proper command uh, of Arabic to really give it its just due. But the most important thing, of the most important detail uh, of the Hezbollah Secretary General's speech was that the rules of engagement that Hezbollah and Israeli and the Israelis have fought along over, I would say, the last 19 years, no longer exist. Sayyid Nasrallah, that Hezbollah said that Hezbollah no longer cares about the rules of engagement. And whenever one of the Mukawama's youth or cadres are, are attacked by the usurping Israeli regime, or even if they're attacked in general, even in general, the resistance will hold uh, Israel responsible, and they will respond in any way, shape, or form that they so desire. The reason why this is significant, ladies and gentlemen, is because there was something called the April Understanding in the wake of the eight-day war between Hezbollah and the Israelis in April of 1996, including the famed Kana Massacre, the first Kana massacre, in which it was something along the lines of 
if you hit our civilians, we will hit your settlements. If you hit our military positions, we will hit your military positions. If you kidnap one of our civilians, like as we see often in the Sheba farms in Gaza, we see the Israelis abducting uh, Lebanese shepherds who are, are simply tending uh, to their sheep or their cows. If you abduct one of our civilians or you abduct one of uh, our resistance fighters, we will abduct one of your soldiers. That is the way it worked. It was a simple tit-for-tat back and forth, and it kept the deterrence going. At the time, it was very historic because Hezbollah did not have the power that it has now. But it was, it was still in the stages of a guerrilla group. And while Hezbollah had inflicted many defeats on Hezbollah between uh, 1982 when it first came into being with the name and 1993 and subsequently 1996, this was a serious, serious uh, development because Hezbollah was a non-state actor dictating military terms to the Israeli regime. It was a very historic uh, moment. Well, now, ladies and gentlemen, another historic moment has happened in which Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah has declared that the rules of engagement no longer apply. What this means, we can only speculate. It could possibly mean that if a Mukawama fighter is killed in Syria or assassinated in Lebanon, Hezbollah can launch attacks on, say, the northern settlements of occupied Palestine. Uh, Hezbollah could launch an operation of liberation without any announcement in Gaza or Kufr Shuba or Sheba Farms as a retaliation. Maybe Hezbollah could attack Israeli positions uh, in the Golan. We do not know, and even speculating, I think, would be improper as a means of protecting uh, the reputation and the operational capacity uh, of the resistance. But the fact of the matter is, is that the rules of engagement no longer exist. And what Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah warned uh, in his epic interview with Al-Mayadeen just a few days before the raid uh, that the Zionists carried out uh, on Kunetra, where he said that the, the, the Zionists should not make any stupid moves. Well, brothers and sisters, I think that that message has now been reiterated tenfold. That is the reality that we're dealing with. Now, you have the background, and I think I provided far more detail than I initially uh, anticipated, and we now go into the conclusion uh, of our program. What was so important, ladies and gentlemen, about this raid vis-a-vis -vis our movement is that Hezbollah reminded the world that while they are busy with all of this Arab Spring nonsense on the one hand, and while they are equally as busy with all of this BDS nonsense on the other hand, there are real forces of resistance that are dealing blow after blow to the very existence of the usurping Zionist regime. And chief among those forces is Hezbollah. Hezbollah reminded the world, and Sayyid Nasrallah announced this in his speech, that the Israeli regime 
the illegitimate Israeli regime, remains as it was 15 years ago when he made his now legendary speech on May 25, 2000, the Day of Liberation, in which he said that this Zionist regime, with its nukes and its lobbies and all of its sophisticated weaponry, this Zionist regime is weaker than a spider's web. And it remains that way today. And instead of people within the ranks of the solidarity movement celebrating, celebrating this Mukawama operation and Sayyid Nasrullah's subsequent speech, celebrating it as a new era, celebrating it that the end of the Zionist regime is near, or as my fiance likes to tell me often, the inevitable demise of the illegitimate Israeli entity. Instead of celebrating this, brothers and sisters, it was just about ignored. And I am not speaking from a position of hyperbole. I am not exaggerating, nor am I embellishing. In the wake of the raid and the Mukawama's retaliation for the raid and then the Sayyid speech, I looked around prominent Solidarity members' websites and their Twitter feeds, friends of mine who were on Facebook, I had them take a look for me there. All these people did, ladies and gentlemen, was simply post links about it or misdiagnose the entire matter as a political entanglement the Netanyahu orchestrated gone wrong. This was the analysis of Max Blumenthal. So as many of you know, I have critiqued uh, on numerous occasions here on the Ugly Truth Broadcasting Network. The reason why, ladies and gentlemen, that these clowns, and I am calling them that without any qualms whatsoever, the reason why these clowns diagnosed the situation as they did is because they want to continue to perpetuate the illusion that by simply boycotting a product here and there, you are going to end the usurping Zionist regime when we all know very, very well and very, very deeply that such a thing is not possible. And the reason is this. People look at the Zionist entity as if it was any other colonialist project. And this is a fundamentally false worldview. When we look at past colonialist regimes, whether it was Germany in certain parts of West Africa, whether it was Portugal and Angola in Mozambique, whether it was Spain uh, in Morocco, the Dutch in Indonesia, the French in God knows how many places throughout uh, the quote-unquote third world, what we refer to as the global south, and of course the British on 90% of the planet, including uh, Iraq, China, Ghana, and again, only God knows how many other places. There are places that the British colonized that we probably don't even know about. While all of these European powers were financed by Rothschild central banks, the fact of the matter is, is that their colonialist regimes operated like colonialist regimes. They set up settlements for people uh, of the colonizing state 
to hijack the natural resources, and they used the indigenous people of the state that was being colonized as cheap labor. This is the natural order of a colonialist regime. Now, when resistance arises to the colonialist regime and the colonialist project, the colonialists will usually pack up their things and leave. Most recently, the white settlers in Zimbabwe, formerly known as Rhodesia, and the apartheid white supremacist fanatic Ian Smith was indeed a close ally of the usurping Jewish regime. The usurping Jewish regime armed, trained, and even financed large parts of the Rhodesian army against Zimbabwean resistance fighters. We also can look at uh, the Dutch colonization of Indonesia, in which the Indonesian people, led and trained and armed by the Japanese military, formed people's militias, including one, gloriously enough, called Hezbollah. They rose up and inflicted all kinds of guerrilla-enforced, guerrilla-derived uh, damage on the Dutch colonial army, and eventually with a guerrilla war, an all-out guerrilla war brewing, and pressure from the international community, the Dutch ended their colonization uh, of Indonesia. And of course, we have Algeria as the most glaring example, in which after a protracted war between Algerian resistance forces backed by uh, revolutionary Egyptian President Jamal Abdel Nasser, the French finally pulled out of Algeria. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, the Zionist entity is not like that. You see, because the Jews, technically speaking, they do not have a homeland. Now, of course, there are certain sects, sections rather, of the Mizrahim, the Jews of the East, who indeed view uh, themselves as Arabs, and they view the Arab world as their homeland. And of course, there are even certain uh, Russian Jews who are currently living in Russia today who do in fact consider Russia, and this is right that they do consider it, they consider Russia their homeland. But for the most part, the Jews view themselves from the cultural and religious perspective as outsiders in foreign lands, and thus Israel is their homeland. Now even though there have been Israeli archaeologists over the last couple of years, Israeli archaeologists, ladies and gentlemen, not Palestinian, not Lebanese, not Iraqi, Iranian, uh, Pakistani, Indonesian, or even European Gentiles who said this, but Israeli archaeologists have determined that Jewish claims to Jerusalem are largely exaggerated. And apart from being largely exa exaggerated, amongst these gargantuan exaggera exaggerations, you also have a plethora of fabrications. So with that said, despite the fact that much of the Jewish claim over the land of Canaan, or as we know it today, Palestine, uh, is based on myth, the Jews still claim this land as their own, and thus they do not view themselves as colonizers. They view themselves as 
refugees returning home. Now, what makes this all the more interesting from, again, a uniquely colonialist perspective, there's never been such a unique form of colonialism like Zionism, is that the Jews who are still living within the Western world, America, Canada, various countries uh, in Europe, not to mention New Zealand and Australia, while they do indeed view Israel as an extension of their Jewishness, of their Jewish culture, their Jewish religion, uh, and their Jewish identity, they still prefer to live in the West. Why? Because they have political and financial clout and influence within the Western states that they are residing in. So you have this Jewish colonial project, Zionism, going on in Palestine, and then you have it extended out to Western capitals all over the world in which these powerful Jewish community organizations orchestrate the foreign policy and, in a lot of cases, domestic policy of these states. So what we have, ladies and gentlemen, is a world colonialist project in which the organs of the Jewish power configuration have colonized the world. Financially and politically, international Jewry has colonized the Western world, and physically each one of these ends of the spectrum, you have to look at the people who are running these organizations. Now, if you go to Mukawama Music, ladies and gentlemen, and that is M-O-U-Q-A-W-A-M-A-H music.net, again, M-O-U-Q-A-W-A-M-A-H music.net, you will find a story uh, that we ran that discusses the persons who who govern uh, and who finance the politics of the usurping Zionist regime. It's called Who Are the Biggest Contributors to the Zionist Entities Politics? Many live in New York and Miami. And it's uh, a piece that we picked up from Israeli liberal uh, daily Haaretz. Now, it speaks of how Jews in Canada, Australia, and in New York, Miami, Los Angeles, and other places in the United States, get all kinds of money to the Zionist entity's political regime. So they live in the West, but they are sending large chunks of their money. And ladies and gentlemen, let me make it clear right now, much of the uh, information regarding the finances of these people is not even going to be reported by the Israeli and Jewish media. It's kept uh, on the down low because there is the, there is the Jewish principle of Masira in which a Jew cannot rat out another Jew to a Gentile authority, and doing so is punishable by death under Orthodox Jewish halakhic Talmudic law. So there is only so much that the Jewish community papers and the Israeli media can reveal because they know that non-Jews are reading it. 
and adhering to the principle of Masira is very, very important. A Jew cannot rat out another Jew to a non-Jewish authority. It cannot happen. So that's perfectly fine because the information that we have available is demonstrative enough. In addition to the political financing that these Zionists within the West give uh, to the illegitimate Israeli regime, we have to take it to the banking, ladies and gentlemen. We have to. We know that the central banks of Europe, America, and Canada are controlled by the Rothschilds. We know that the world's financial industry in general, in general, is controlled by the Rothschilds, and it has been for several hundred years now. We also know that the new model of economic terrorism that the American regime is engaged in against various countries all over the world, at the moment the most prominent ones, of course, are Venezuela, Russia, and Iran. We know that this model, which is known as neoliberalism, which is arguably the most vicious form of economic warfare in the history of mankind was designed by none other than Zionist Jew Milton Friedman. So when you consider these things, ladies and gentlemen, that the most wealthy persons in the world are the Rothschilds, who have bank accounts consisting of several hundred trillion, that's trillion with a TR, trillion dollars, not to mention the likes of Sheldon Adelson on Sheldon Adelson on the right, uh, Haim Saban on the left, George Soros on the far left, and it has recently come out that George Soros even stuck his dirty Zionist hands in the Ferguson protests that took America by storm last year. So there was radical black consciousness that was taking hold uh, in many places throughout the United States, including New York uh, and Missouri, where people were linking the police brutality against them, as well as other people across the United States, including white communities, with the illegitimate Israeli regime. George Soros steps in and co-ops it, de-radicalizes it, makes it more racially based, and the movement has since died out within the last couple of months. So the point of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, is that with these Jewish billionaires, they literally control the world's financial markets. Literally. All of your main banks are controlled by Jews and Jewish, stockholder, and Jewish stockholders. All of your main media organizations are controlled by Zionist Jews and Jewish stockholders. So... Even if, ladies and gentlemen, and it's something that we're all working toward, undoubtedly, just as a matter of principle, that the American government should indeed cut ties with the Israeli entity, even if the aid, which is more along the lines of $10 billion, $12 billion, according to Martin Indyk, the former U.S. ambassador uh, to the Zionist regime and a dedicated Jewish lobbyist, $12 billion a year with the military aid, not to mention what is known as the loan guarantees, in which the American regime gives Israel $6 billion in unpayable loans every year. Even if this money, ladies and gentlemen, was to be cut off, the powers of international Jewry, the figureheads of international Jewry, the chieftains 
of world Zionism would be able to finance the Israeli regime for decades to come. So what I am getting at is that people putting all of this emphasis on BDS because you are able to get a school to remove uh, Sabra Hummus from their lunches. And we know that Sabra Hummus, the shareholders, are members of the Golani Brigades, one of the most warmongering and genocidal uh, organs of the Israeli military. Or because you're able to get soda stream, which is produced on illegal settlements throughout the West Bank, because you're able to get a soda stream factory closed down, the solidarity movement touts these as game-changing victories when they're nothing of the sort. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the economic relationship between the state of California and the occupying Jewish regime by itself amounts to a little over $4 billion every year. So how is it that getting this company or that company to dump uh, a few hundred thousand dollars or even tens of millions of dollars, how is that going to make a dent in the Israeli regime? Not to mention, as we go on, the settler population of the Israeli entity becomes more and more supremacist. In other words, more and more Jewish. Again, referring back to Yossi Gerbitz's all-important talk, when Israel is mighty, when the Jews have their state, the idea of Gentile authorities dictating to them, the idea of Jews living by Gentile rules and not the laws of the Halakha and the Talmud is asinine to them. So as the Jews become more entrenched in Palestine, they're only going to become more and more supremacist, more and more bigoted, and more and more anti-Gentile. And as we see with the false flag attack with Charlie Hebdo, we now see French Jews planning an exodus there. So as the years go by, the usurping Israeli entity and its mass murder organ, the Mossad, is going to carry out more like similar operations where Jews will consider themselves vulnerable and get them to leave. And there will be even more Jewish colonialists in Palestine, while, of course, the very prominent families will remain in their high watchtowers dictating Western policy. So the solidarity movement, ladies and gentlemen, is attempting to put a Band-Aid on the ground where a nuclear bomb was dropped. That's the equivalent. We should be using BDS, ladies and gentlemen, to organize. We should be using BDS to raise awareness. And we should be using BDS as a means to an end, not an end itself, as my dear brother Trevor Levante wrote, uh, in his most recent piece for Mukawama Music, which all of you should most definitely read. And that brings me, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to the final part of our program. And Brother Trevor, I know you're behind the glass. I told you it was only going to be an hour, but we're running a little bit over, so I would like to wrap it up with the essence uh, of your piece. 
Those of you who have been following MukawamaMusic.net, I'm sure you have picked up on the fact that we have recently started a couple of microblogs, and we will have a separate page for our microblogs in the coming days, uh, inshallah. Uh, my dear brother Navi Khan, who goes by Khanverse, that's his MC moniker, his uh, microblog slash journal is called Contemplation. Uh, brother Trevor's is called Rise and Travolt. And my dear brother, I cannot give you credit for that one. I, of course, am the one who coined that for you. <laughs> and the second entry of Brother Trevor's uh, journal, Rise and Travolt, is called Nico Pellet and Robert Martin, Two More Discourse Policing Gatekeepers of Zion. And what Brother Trevor wrote, it really sums it up here. So I am going uh, to read this to you, ladies and gentlemen. Israel itself is only one symptom of the problem. Israel was founded by the illegitimate Jewish Rothschild Criminal International Bankster Syndicate. They have a quadrillion-dollar global heist going on, and they control almost all of the world's money supply. Their religion, Judaism, tells them that their mission is to steal all the wealth of the Gentiles and make them live as slaves to the Jews in a Jewish utopia. This is a problem which must be solved at its source. We cannot blow smoke up our own asses about boycotting figs and couscous and soda machines. This accomplishes nothing at all. The cabal already have all of the money. You can't hurt them in their pocket. BDS should be used as a tactic for raising awareness about this worldwide felonious Jewish enterprise. It should be a means to an end, not the end itself. BDS is indeed useful for organizing and information dissemination purposes, but anyone espousing the line that BDS is the key to Palestine's liberation is, simply put, a liar or a fool. The fighters of Hezbollah didn't liberate Lebanon from Zionist hellishness with boycotts. Now, did they? I would like to expound upon this, ladies and gentlemen, by referring to a quote from Deputy Hezbollah Secretary General Sheikh Naim Qasim uh, in his book about Hezbollah, called A Story uh, From Within. Um, within the book, the Sheikh, Allah Yahmi Rab, discusses uh, Gandhi and the South African model when applying it uh, to Israel. And he said that, poly, that, that uh, protests, nonviolent unarmed protests, only work if they're being carried out in conjunction with armed resistance. And he said something quite similar to what Brother Trevor wrote and what I have said on numerous occasions, that the boycott should be a tactic, uh, not the begin-all, end-all method of attempting to secure the liberation of occupied Palestine. This is the reality, ladies and gentlemen. The BDS movement has taken the teeth, in fact, I would even say has ripped out the teeth of the liberationist struggle and those who are struggling within, with solidarity, uh, in solidarity with it. They are attempting to tell us that as long as we differentiate between Zionism and quote unquote anti Zionism and quote unquote anti Semitism, which as we know now, ladies and gentlemen, anti Semitism is nothing but a code word, a mask of Zion for opposition to Jewish power. 
There is not a single person from among our ranks here at The Ugly Truth and numerous other persons that we are allied with who hate Jews as Jews, which is the classical definition of anti-Semitism, that you hate Jews because they're Jews. This is utterly nonsensical. We are in opposition to Jewish power, and we are in opposition to the supremacy of the Jewish religion. We are in opposition to the historical myth known as the Holocaust, which is used as an ideological bludgeon by international Zionism to silence critiques of its power. We are in opposition to the historical myth of 19 Arab hijackers on 9-11. We are opposed to all of these things because it is detrimental to our struggle for liberation. And these people, Robert Martin, Nico Pellet, Max Blumenthal, Ali Abunima, who once again showed his true colors recently, he decided to write a piece about uh, our dear brother Dio Donay in France, in which he described Dio Donay, a black man, mind you, which we will get to in just a moment, in which he called this black man the great-great-great-grandson of slaves. This is a son of the transatlantic slave trade whose family came from Cameroon. He called Dio Donay a racist and an anti-Semite because Dio Donay is diametrically opposed to Jewish power. Now, what's so funny about the hypocrisy and duplicity of this piece from Ali Abunima, along with all of his tweets about it, is that he would never say that, never, to a black power activist who was going on and on about white supremacy, uh, white power, and the white ownership of slaves. He would never, ever say that. But when Dio Donay talks about the Jewish ownership of slaves, the Jewish trafficking of slaves, and the Jewish control of the transatlantic slave trade, he dares to speak out and call him a racist, a bigot, and an anti-Semite. So this is a person who is, who is trying to appropriate what a black man can and cannot talk about vis-a-vis his very ugly history with the Jews going all the way back to the curse of Ham. And this is exactly what I'm getting at, ladies and gentlemen. These people are gatekeepers. They do not want to talk about the supremacy of Judaism. They do not want to talk about Jewish Zionist power in the Western world. They do not want to talk about historical revisionism, which is so integral to deconstructing the victimhood complex that is inherent to Zionism. They do not want to talk about 9-11, now the Charlie Hebdo attacks as the false flags that they are. They don't want to talk about anything of note, or as Brother Trevor called it, the source. They do not want to talk about the source. They want to talk about human rights violations and Amnesty International reports and Human Rights Watch reports, the very same institutions, both bankrolled by Zionist Jewish criminal billionaire George Soros, mind you, that paved the way for the Zionist imperialist invasion of Libya and the ongoing GCC-NATO destabilization of Syria. 
The same institutions that, while condemning quote unquote Israeli war crimes in both the July War and Cast Lead, as well as Operation Pillar of Cloud and, and Operation Mighty Cliff recently, also condemned Hezbollah and the Palestinian resistance for committing war crimes themselves. Imagine these institutions, which are supposed to be looked at as the pinnacle of human rights criticize indigenous organic resistance movements who are fighting the genocidal beasts of the Israeli occupation military. It's insanity, ladies and gentlemen. It's complete and utter insanity. So these people, ladies and gentlemen, while posing as anti-Zionists, are really nothing but cloaks, cloaks, for Jewish power and human rights imperialism, which is the model that was, that was adopted by the Obama administration. It's not the crash, slam, bang, neocon imperialism that we saw under the Bush regime. It is the human rights imperialism that we saw under the Clinton regime. So, we have to understand that while we have to focus our attention, obviously, on the schemes, the plots, the behavior, and the shadowy movements of international Zionism and their Shabbos Goy collaborators. We also have to readjust our discourse, ladies and gentlemen. We have to take one out of Hezbollah's playbook and declare that the rules of engagement with the solidarity movement are now over. They need to straighten up and fly right and stop carrying water for the Jewish elite or they will allow themselves to become open targets like any Israeli official, any Zionist official, any Zionist power broker, Zionist billionaire, Zionist corporation owner, Zionist banker, etc., etc., etc. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, we need to look at these people as even more dangerous than many of the right-wing Zionist neocons that are openly Jewish supremacists that we're used to dealing with, because these people are pretending to be our friends while subverting our struggle. How dare these people say that we do not have a say in the discourse? How dare they? It's deplorable, ladies and gentlemen. Simply put, it's deplorable. And you have to look at the behavior of international Zionism when we are at these peak moments. And this was something that was pointed out to me uh, by my dear friend and brother and Mukawabah Music co-founder, who I mentioned a little earlier, uh, Naveed Khan, a.k.a. Khanverse, that every time there is a paradigm shift happening, there is someone that the Jewish power configuration will take from within their ranks, turn them into an alternative news media superstar, and get you to follow it. Case in point, Max Blumenthal who comes from the Blumenthal political dynasty, whose father was an advisor to the liberal Zionist stooge Bill Clinton, who had a blast bombing Iraq, 
sanctioning Iraq, bombing Sudan and getting the process of balkanization ready there, not to mention the complete destabilization and destruction and, and, and later deconstruction of Yugoslavia into several smaller states. Max Blumenthal was simply covering the religious right here in America. He talked about the Republicans and their bizarre Christian uh, apocalyptic obsessions with no mention whatsoever of Zionism. Then when caste led happened and large portions of the planet woke up to the horrific brutality, Max Blumenthal popped on the scene and has since become a very prominent anti-Zionist voice, maybe the most prominent anti-Zionist voice after Ali Abu Nima. Meanwhile, Max Blumenthal is anti-Russia and thoroughly anti-Syria. But yet, this person, ladies and gentlemen, is looked at as a major voice. The same thing goes for Miko Pellet. This is a person who is the son of an Israeli general, and this is a person who has openly espoused the idea that Palestinians and Israelis have more in common than they think. Imagine! Imagine! The oppressed, those who have been faced with, who are forced to go through genocide, the colonized, the occupied, the bombarded, the murdered, the raped, and the pillaged have something in common with their killers. It's unbelievable. But Miko Pellet came out of nowhere when the discourse was shifting towards the end of the Israeli regime. Here comes Miko Pellet with the idea of a one of a binational state where Jews and Palestinians can live, in the, live together in harmony and the Zionist project can remain. What the mainstream media creates, brothers and sisters, are non-sequitur issues. Instead of focusing on what is news, they will get you focusing on what isn't news. So case in point, with the raid that Hezbollah carried out, the discussion, which was driven by these anti-Zionist Zionists, as Gilad Atmon uh, likes to call them, these anti-Zionist Zionists delivered a discourse that said that this was a political maneuver by Netanyahu. And they even adopted the utterly ridiculous Reuters report that said Hezbollah passed a message to the Zionist regime via UNIFIL that they did not want an escalation. Only for Sayyid Nasrullah two days later to say that the rules of engagement are over, which shows you how intellectually and politically bankrupt they really are these activists who spread that pathetic and disgusting baseless report. So it's centered around, will there be a war, and why did Netanyahu do this, instead of the essence of it, which, which is that the war for liberation is coming, in which the Lebanese Islamic resistance will eventually liberate the Galilee the surrounding villages, and go further than that, inshallah khair yaram. Instead of focusing on the hope, the real, unequivocal hope that Hezbollah brings us for the total liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea, they focused on these two non-sequitur issues. Another point, Edward Snowden. We at The Ugly Truth were the only ones who said this was 
Zionist game theory warfare to put pressure on the Obama regime to invade Syria, which does not go along with Obama's neoliberal imperialist doctrine. They tried the neoliberal imperialist doctrine, which is fourth-generation warfare, arming proxies, unleashing them on the state, and it failed. Obama did not want to give the Zionists their overt war on Syria. And that's when the Edward Snowden revelations became tremendously prominent. They were put forth by none other than Glenn Greenwald, who up until this point was uh, at least seemed like a non-tribalistic Jew who was simply a solid reporter. Then it comes out, ladies and gentlemen, that Glenn Greenwald is a defender of none other than the most notorious Zionist spy in American history, Jonathan Pollard. That's right, Glenn Greenwald defended Pollard and called for him to be released. And he even said that the Israeli regime had democratically elected officials when Greenwald should know very well that there is nothing democratic about the usurping Jewish supremacist regime. It turns out that the financier of Glenn Greenwald's project, The Intercept, is an Iranian billionaire, a house Muslim, a house Persian, a Shabbos Goy connected with the, with the Peter Ackerman, George Soros regime change NGO machine. And this particular person, Pierre Amidyar, has given all kinds of money to the NGOs that were a part of the regime change operation in Ukraine. So the Edward Snowden, Glenn Greenwald affair got, you, got the world talking about uh, was Edward Snowden right or was he wrong? And on the alternative uh, perspective, you had people who were worshiping Snowden and people who were saying, well, you know, I don't really like Snowden's politics, but I certainly appreciate what he's doing. Instead of focusing on the fact that the Israelis have been spying on the world long before there were any revelations about America, and that the Israelis' spying regime helped facilitate the civilization, global-changing event known as the 9-11 terrorist attacks. We should be talking about the way the Israelis wage false flags, the way the Israelis wage game theory warfare. Instead, the entire news sphere, alternative and mainstream alike, are talking about whether Snowden was right or whether it was wrong. So this is what international Zionism does, ladies and gentlemen. They create heroic organizations and they create heroic individuals. They create stories for you to follow when you should be looking in quite literally the opposite direction. It is up to us to discern what is and isn't news. And by us, I mean those in the worldwide resistance movement against international Jewry in all of its organs and proxies. We have to make that discernment if we are to progress in our analysis, which we are using as the foundation to overthrow these lunatics. We have to. And at the same time, brothers and sisters, we have to fall in line 
with the idea that while we may have learned many things from Ali Abu Nima, Max Blumenthal, Glenn Greenwald, Jeremy Scahill, and other like similar people, these persons are not our friends. They've proven that with the war on Syria and the ongoing war uh, in Ukraine, particularly, though, Syria. Syria was really uh, the line that was drawn in the battlefield. And the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, that Hezbollah's uh, retaliation and the loss of the Kunaitra models, this should have been a wake-up call for everyone that, should, that really offers the final nail in the coffin that Hezbollah's decision to intervene in Syria was the right thing, and it indeed was an anti-Zionist maneuver. Not only was Hezbollah defending its supply lines, which were on the verge of being cut off by the Takhtiris who had been occupying uh, in the countryside of Homs, but as we heard Sayyid Nasrallah a couple weeks ago, he said that Jab the Jabhat al-Nusra, which is operating in its thousands uh, in Kunaitra and in other parts of the Zionist-occupied Golan, is the new force of uh, Antoine Lahab, who of course ran the SLA, which was the Zionist auxiliary that fought Hezbollah during the period of Zionist occupation in South Lebanon. So Jabhat al-Nusra has just been categorized by the leader of the most successful resistance movement uh, in the modern era as a Zionist proxy. And you would think that people would be jumping on this, and they are not. Instead, they continue to distance themselves from it. For me, ladies and gentlemen, it's a pretty simple equation. Hezbollah liberated South Lebanon in 2000. They defeated the Israelis in combat in 2006. And they have provided one humiliation to the Jewish power configuration after another over the last several years. We have seen Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah tackle uh, every major political topic of our time accurately and inspiringly. And when these people, these brave and dauntless people, engage in an action, you should know in your heart and in your soul that it is the right action. It is the righteous action. It is the godly action. Because they are indeed the party of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And to think that there are people within our ranks that would dare claim that they are representatives of the Palestinian cause, to think that there are people within our ranks that would dare claim they are true anti-Zionists, but they would open up their mouths against Hezbollah, it's not only shameful, ladies and gentlemen, and laughable, it's also very dangerous. The battle line has been drawn. The gatekeepers have had their opportunity over the last several years. And with this thing in the Golan, they had a chance to get behind it and admit their wrongs and say that, well, you know, it looks like Hezbollah was right, and it looks like the Israelis really are looking to destabilize Syria for their own interests. Instead of them doing that, they doubled down in their willful ignorance 
and their slander of the Lebanese Islamic resistance of Hezbollah along with its allies in Damascus and Tehran. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, allow us to say to hell with the gatekeepers and to hell with the opponents of the resistance axis and long live the forces of resistance wherever they may be. Whether it is the Lebanese Islamic resistance of Hezbollah, the Syrian Arab army, the Islamic revolution in Iran, Nouveau Russia's armed forces in eastern Ukraine, the Houthis in Yemen, the resistance of occupied Palestine, the resistance in occupied Kashmir, or anyone and everyone standing up to the Zionist power configuration throughout the globe. Long live this resistance. Long live this resistance until international Jewry and all its puppets are overthrown and sent to hell or jail where they belong. Inshallah khair, ya Rab. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, you have just finished listening to the February 9th, 2015 edition of the Mask of Zion Report here on the Ugly Truth Broadcasting Network. My name is Jonathan Azaziah. Behind the glass, we have Brother Trevor Labonte. You can find more information about everything we discussed today on the uglytruth.wordpress.com and mukawamamusic.net. Thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. You'll be hearing from us again quite shortly, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.